will remain standing, if you would, and let's take out our copy of God's Word to us. Turn it to Romans chapter 11, and follow along as I read verses 1 through 24 of Romans chapter 11. The Apostle Paul, writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives to us the very word of God Almighty to us this morning. Let us give heed to it. Paul asks, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you once again for your word that you give to us. 
We thank you for your spirit that you give to us who illumines that word um, within our hearts and we pray that, that he would do so this morning. We pray that you would use the, the weakness of the vessel who proclaims your word this morning that uh, you would fill him with your spirit, Lord, that he may be your vessel to proclaim your word this morning and help each of us who hear to, to hear with, with joy and with caution, Lord, as we hear the things that are before us and to rejoice in you, the God who has done all of this. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're in the middle, of course, of chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 24 this morning. Here in this final chapter of the final chapter of this section, uh, verses or chapters 9, 10, and 11, and we are really in the the final chapter, the final verses here coming up uh, of the first major division of of the book of Romans, uh, this Hyperion of the New Testament that we've spoken of. By the way, pop quiz for anyone after service, children especially, or adults for that matter, if you can come up to me after service and tell me what that Hyperion reference is all about, if you can think back that far, I'll, well, I'll shake your hand and tell you good job. And that goes for adults too. Uh, Paul here in these chapters is writing, in chapters 9 through 11, is writing about Israel, about Two things, their rejection of God and God's rejection of them. Both are sad but undisputed facts. Regarding their rejection of God, you know, the Jews who, as Paul has told us on a couple of occasions of occasions already in this book, they were recipients of great privileges. They were given uh, the will of God and the plan of God and the law of God. Um, But they, as any reader of the Bible knows, rejected God. They rejected his will. They rejected his plan. They rejected his law. They rejected his gospel. They rejected his son. Jim read this morning from 2 Kings 17 a, a record of the sins of Israel, a litany given there of their acts of rebellion against God and and their rejection of Him as God. And we know that this then even accelerated as we came to the the time of the New Testament, became all the more destructive when God sent His Son into the world, the one who was long promised, and the Jews answered by rejecting Him, by rejecting their, their Messiah, and killed Him. John says he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And Paul says that this, or Luke writes, that that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you Jews that he's speaking to, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. So they had rejected God. But it's just as clear in Scripture that God had therefore rejected them. That's also made clear in several places in Scripture. Again, from the portion that that Jim read this morning, 
that was listed in there to give a, a, an understanding of why God had rejected his people and allowed them, particularly there, the northern kingdom, to be conquered and to be taken away because they had rejected God. The same thing happened to the, the southern kingdom. So the, from the Assyrians, from the Babylonians, God's people were taken away because God says that he had rejected his people because they had rejected him. In the New Testament, again, that continues. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 21, known as the parable of the tenants, um, that a, a man had, had planted a vineyard and he had provided everything for it. And when the time came to come and collect the rent, which would have been in the form of part of the produce, um, you know the story that the people, the, the ones who, to whom he had leased the vineyard, um, beat the servant and sent him away empty. And finally, at the end of that parable, as it concludes, Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the Pharisees were listening and they were upset, Matthew writes, because it says that they knew that he was speaking about them. In the book of Acts, in Acts 18.5, we read this, that when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garment and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Also in the book of Acts, in chapter 14, we read the next Sabbath. Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And the book of Acts is largely the record of, of that turning to the Gentiles and the gospel going to the ends of the earth of that area, to the Gentiles of, of that area. And with all of this in mind, we came last week to the question with which Paul began this chapter. The question is, has God rejected his people? And actually, that is the question of chapters 9 and 10 and 11. That's the, chapter, that's the question that is covering this whole section here. And if you were with us last week, you remember Paul's answer to that question was, by no means. By which we saw he meant, no, God has not rejected his people. He has not rejected them totally. He has not rejected them finally. The rejection that they have encountered through and on account of their own hardness of heart and their own rejection of God and the judicial hardening of God, we saw last week that that is not a rejection of every single member of the Jewish nation. And this morning, we will begin to see that this rejection, this hardening of the Jews, is also not the final word on the Jews at large. Just as they, we learned last week, are not rejected totally, we'll find out beginning this morning that neither are they finally or irretrievably rejected. 
In this section of the chapter, Paul begins again with a question, and as he answers it, we're going to be learning about the oscillating effect of Israel's rejection. We'll see an exhortation to the grafted-in Gentiles, and finally we'll see the feasibility of Israel's restoration. Let's look first at the oscillating effect of Israel's rejection. You know what I mean by oscillating, what an oscillation is. It's uh, something that goes back and forth. Uh, a sine wave is an oscillation. A, um, think of a sprinkler that goes and then goes back the other way. That's an oscillation of a different kind. We're going to see the, the swings of redemptive history here. His question that Paul asked is there in verse 11 where he says, So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Now, remember, this is connected to what we saw last week, particularly, well, really, it's connected to everything in chapters 9 and 10 and 11 again. But specifically, it's connected to what comes just before it, what we saw last week. And that was the description right at the end of those first 10 verses, the description of the hardening that that Israel has encountered. That God has given to them, it says, a spirit of stupor or of dullness. Uh, Eyes, it says, that would not see. Ears that would not hear. And Paul's application there at the the very end is application of David's prayer in Psalm 69 against the enemies of God that Paul saw as applying to the enemies of Christ, especially the Jewish enemies of Christ in his day. And he applies that to them there at the end of chapter, uh, or verse 10 of chapter 11. But that brings us to the question in chapter 11. I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 11. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? That is, is their rejection of Christ and of the righteousness that comes from faith, we saw that back in chapter 9, verses 31 through 33, that they rejected uh, that, that they were searching, remember, for righteousness through works and not through faith. Therefore, they were stumbling over Christ, over the stumbling stone. The question here is, is that rejection a permanent situation? Is their fall an irretrievable fall? Is that the end of the book, the end of the story on the Jews? And Paul's answer? For the last time in the book of Romans, we hear Paul respond in this way, by no means. God forbid. No, he says, it isn't irretrievable. It is not the... the, 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 Rejection of them is not final, just as it wasn't total. But it was also not without a God-ordained effect. And that effect, he says here, is that through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Stop there. So this is the first oscillation, the, the beginning that, that, that occurs here. And this is something that most people who have been Christians for any time generally recognize. I mentioned at the beginning of our message some of the scriptural quotations that teach this about Israel being rejected. That the nation of Israel as a whole, through, through their continued rejection of Christ when he came and revealed himself as the Messiah and the Savior of men, that they were consequently rejected by God. 
Jesus himself said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. But this becomes then another example of God bringing good things from terrible things. Just as he brought the ground of our salvation from the murder of his son, he also, through the Jewish rejection of Jesus and through God's, therefore, his rejection of them, he brought about the gospel going to the Gentiles. Let me remind you of those two texts that I read a little bit ago. From Acts, first from Acts 18.5. He says that when the Jews were opposing Paul, um, or when they were opposing the preaching of the gospel, that Paul shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. And from Acts 14.44. He says at the end, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, but since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. In both cases, Paul's decision to go and to preach to the Gentiles, remember, was a result not just of the rejection, but of the hostility of the Jews in their rejection. The hostility of the Jews to the message of Christ. And it wasn't new then, remember back in, in the Gospels, when, when Jesus was still here on the earth, that the Jews had violently rejected Jesus. We will not have this man to rule over us, they said. His blood be on us and on our children, but crucify him. That was their judgment concerning their Messiah. And they continued to reject and be hostile to the gospel and those who preached it. Again, read through the book of Acts and you see that over and over and over. But that had the God-ordained, blessed effect of sending then the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the earth, which the apostles had been commanded to do in the great commission which God had given them. But it, just, it caused it to go out from there to other places. Back in Acts chapter 8, we read that as a result of the, the Jewish rejection of the gospel as it was preached by Stephen, remember, and they stoned him and killed him. And as a result of that, that the, the disciples were scattered and they began to preach the gospel in the places to which they were scattered, bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And we should not forget that Paul himself was specifically called to that task, specifically called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, which he even reminds us of here in chapter 11 down in verse 13, where he says, Now as much I am, or now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. That's the way we think of Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles who went to these various cities and preached to the, to the Gentiles and to Jews as well to bring them the news of the gospel. And so as the Jews rejected God and God rejected the Jews, the Gentiles were brought the good news of Jesus. 
And that was a path for the the effect of the gospel that didn't even end there. There's a second swing, a second oscillation here, and one which Paul is going to make much of in these verses and even more next week. We see it at the end of verse 11. Let me read the whole verse again. He says, So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. We see that again down in verse 14. In order to make my fellow Jews, Paul says, jealous. By the Gentiles being brought in, the Jews in God's plan are to be made jealous of that. So in the master plan of God, Israel is called by God and set apart, made holy to be a light to the nations. They failed in that through the the initial route in that they themselves walked away from God. But of course Jesus, who was the one who would ultimately be the light to the nations and, and the one foretold in the prophets, the one confirmed by righteous Simeon in the temple after the birth of Jesus. He is the light. But then Israel triggers, if you will, the full-scale expansion of the gospel to the nations foretold in the prophets and confirmed um, in the New Testament. When they reject Christ, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. But then, as an effect of the worldwide preaching of the gospel and the wholesale bringing in of Gentiles into the kingdom of God, that is to induce jealousy or will induce jealousy on the part of Israel. Again, something clearly predicted all the way back to the earliest days of the nation of Israel, back in Deuteronomy, which is probably what's in Paul's mind here in Romans 11, 11. God said this through Moses. He said, they, speaking of his people, they have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. He said, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And Paul says, now that is ultimately being fulfilled in God taking the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations, and they being brought into the church through it in ever-growing numbers. And this jealousy, Paul is saying, will be used by God to actually remove the hardening that is laid upon Israel for so long. And we'll continue to see that. Now, we have to be careful here. I should draw your attention to the fact that there is nothing in chapters 9 through 11 that refers to some future physical millennial kingdom or with a removal of the church prior to to the reversal of this hardening of Israel. Nothing in these chapters that the dispensationalists try to wring from these passages. But what this passage does seem to be saying is that the Gentiles being brought in will bring about jealousy among Israel as they see the Gentiles enjoying the blessings that they rejected. And that will lead to their coming to accept the gospel and receive Christ and for them to be restored to God. 
Not, not some act of God where he brings Israel into the church apart from them coming to Christ. That can't happen. Jesus is the only way to come. And so if the Jews are to come to Christ, they must, or to God, they must come through Christ. And Paul is saying here that that's going to happen. Now there's more to say on that, but that's the gist of, of what Paul is saying here. Now, let's dot our I's and cross our T's a little bit here. Just to be clear, and we'll talk more about this next week, Paul is talking here about Israel as a nation. He's talking broadly. He's talking generally. He's talking here about not just the elect, because it's obvious that the elect are going to come to Christ. That's what it means to be elect. But Paul is talking here about the nation as a whole. And this has really been his concern, hasn't it, in all of these chapters, from chapter 9. He's concerned about my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, Israelites, he says. It was Israel, he said, the nation as a whole in chapter 9, verses 31 and 32. It was Israel that pursued a law that would lead to righteousness but did not pursue it, did not pursue that righteousness by faith. Now, he's not saying by this that every Jew is going to be saved. But what he's saying is that the hardening, the the veil over their eyes that has been um, over their eyes since the times when Paul wrote will one day be removed. And that there will be a great influx of Jews to come to God through faith in Jesus Christ and will be justified in the exact same way that you are justified which again is now and always has been and always will be the only way that anyone will be justified by God or before God. And Paul is saying that this will come about in part through this jealousy that is, that is brought to be by the fact that the Gentiles have been given the gospel. So, so listen to what he says here. Look at verse 11. Again, rather through their trespass, that's through the Jews' trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And he says, now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. And notice that Paul even says that his specific calling here as bringer of the gospel of the Gentiles in a sense serves that larger purpose. In verse 13, He says, I I magnify my ministry. He says, my ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles is made even bigger than just to the Gentiles by virtue of the effect that it will have on the Jews. That they will be made jealous and some of them will be saved. So, we've got this back and forth. Israel rejects God and God turns to the Gentiles with the gospel. The Gentiles accept that message by faith, which makes Israel jealous. And Israel will return then to God and trust in Christ and be saved. 
But there's one more oscillation of sorts, one more bounce of redemptive history. And it's this, that the result of Israel's restoration will result in great blessings to them and to the Gentiles. In verse 12, which we just read, Paul gives a from the lesser to the greater kind of argument that he likes to do so often. He says, now if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? If, as we've seen, the Jewish failure means riches for the world because the gospel goes to the world for the Gentiles, then, he says, how much more will their, will Israel's full inclusion mean? And the, the phrase full inclusion there literally means fullness or the full number. doesn't mean every single one, but it means all that God intends to do this for. It will be riches. How much more will that inclusion mean? What is that? What is that blessing that he's anticipating? Well, he doesn't say here, but look down in verse 15, which is a parallel to this verse. He says, For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So a a parallel statement there to verse 12, except that the blessing that will come from their acceptance of the gospel through the working of God is described as life from the dead. Now that's another one of those phrases, I mentioned one last week, uh, and we'll mention one next week certainly, that is debated. What is meant by life from the dead? Is it a reference to, to, to the final resurrection, life from the dead? That's the most natural way to read it. Or does it refer to some undefined and and unprecedented experience of blessing? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, But it's not hard to say that there is some connection here between the fullness of Israel, uh, their acceptance, and this clearly end-time blessing. One of the greatest authorities on Paul's writings today said it this way, that the conversion of Israel will be the beginning of the closing act of the eschatological drama. We can't get too more detailed with any certainty. But just as Israel's rejection of the gospel has triggered the stage of salvation history that we're in now with the gospel going to the Gentiles with Israel hardened, so Paul seems to be saying that the restoration of Israel, their fullness, will likewise trigger the climactic end of salvation history, whatever exactly Paul is talking about here. Now as he goes on to to ground this teaching of Israel not being rejected totally, not being rejected finally. He gives us a couple of illustrations in verse 16. He says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. 
And basically what he is doing here is reaching back into Old Testament history and in these illustrations is showing the fact that because Israel in its initial calling, uh, particularly of Abraham, most scholars believe that this is referring back to the patriarchs and again particularly Abraham, setting apart him and setting apart the nation that would come from him, that it makes it consistent with God's character that he would not totally and finally just disregard that people. But the second illustration serves as a transition. The second part of verse 16. It serves as a transition for Paul and the idea here of the root and the branches. He says if the root is holy, so are the branches. That is transitional to Paul as he comes to the second thing that we want to see this morning, and that is an exhortation to the grafted-in Gentiles. In verses 17 to 24, Paul is going to continue to speak about this tree, the tree of the people of God. It's interesting that, that though some people want to connect this tree with national Israel, Paul doesn't call the tree Israel here. The picture begins with, and this is, this is difficult, the picture begins with Israel, but very soon it reveals itself, we'll see this as we go through it, as something different. This tree actually represents the people of God. Uh, we might say the true Israel. Now, it's also important, as we get started here on this little bit, is that important to mention in light of dispensationalism and the teaching that they've put forward, it's important to note that here there is just one tree. There aren't two trees growing side by side. God doesn't look at one tree for a while and then ignore it and look at the other tree. There's just one tree. And with that said, the main point of verses 17 to 24 is an exhortation to us, an exhortation to the Gentiles who have who have been reading this or have been listening to all of this as Paul writes to the church at Rome, an exhortation to them to not hear all of this going on and become arrogant in regard to the Jews. And along the way, he includes, of course, some invaluable doctrine for us. First, he explains how it is that the Gentiles, us, have have come to be included on this tree of the kingdom, this tree of God's people. Remember that the tree itself began, its roots began with the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. That's where God entered into covenant with Abraham. But Paul begins by saying first that some of the natural branches, he says, were broken off. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, well, we'll stop there. Now, who are they? Who are the natural branches that were broken off? Well, they are the unbelieving people of the nation of Israel. This is what we've been seeing, God rejecting those who have rejected him. Israel as a whole was broken off, but as part of that, many of the people of Israel were broken off because of their rebellion, because of their idolatry, because of their rejection. Look down in verse 20. He says, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. That's why they were broken off. The second thing that has happened is that the Gentiles have, by God's grace, through faith, been added to that tree. They have been grafted in. Again, verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, 
Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot, you know, something apart, there's a, he considers a, a cultivated tree, and then a wild tree. We're the wild tree. Um, and he says in verse 17, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. So the Gentiles, not part of the natural olive tree, not part of the original people of God, what Paul calls the wild olive shoot, you, he says, were grafted in among the others. Now who are the others? These are the others that are left. The unbelieving ones were broken off. The believing of Israel, the remnant, we would think of, are the ones that are still on this tree, and now the Gentiles have been grafted into that tree along with them. Still one tree, the tree of God's people. And not just sort of nailed onto the tree, the way I would do it if I was trying to graft a limb onto another tree, But he says, you have been grafted in and now share in the nourishing root of the tree. They gain the nourishment from it. They're a living, vital part now of that tree. Believing Gentiles, again, notice, do not constitute another tree, but are grafted in. They're made part of the original tree, and they gain their nourishment from the root system of that tree. Paul elsewhere says in Galatians 3.9 that those who have who are of faith, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That holy root of this tree. And even more specifically, in Galatians 3.29, Paul says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. You are part of that tree. You, You receive the benefits of being part of that tree. That's, the, that's where he begins. But then he says that the temptation here, and since Paul is writing this in this letter to the, to the Roman church, the, the actual experience probably of the Apostle Paul is that the Gentiles were looking at all of this and becoming puffed up about it, becoming arrogant, looking down on the Jews and perhaps considering them the old club, whereas we, the Gentiles, are the, the new kids. We're, we're it now. And Paul's message to them is, don't. Don't do that. First, verse 18 says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So he says, first, don't do that because you actually owe a debt to Israel. You owe a debt to the Jews. They are the root. It all began with the patriarchs with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. To them came the covenant. To them came the word of God. For them, or from them, according to the flesh, Paul had said earlier, came Christ. In verse 19, he brings in an argument that perhaps a Gentile might bring. He says, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's pretty special. God got rid of some so he could bring me in. And Paul says in verse 20, well, that's true. It's true that that there were branches broken off and and that you were grafted in. But he says that doesn't give you any right to, to boast or to gloat or to be arrogant toward them. The the breaking off and the grafting in came about not because of any intrinsic worth that you had or intrinsic lack of worth that they had. 
He says again that they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. And remember, faith removes from us any capacity or any reason to boast in ourselves. Back in chapter 3, Paul talking about being justified by faith, through faith. He said, where then is boasting? He said, it's excluded. And the same thing here. Boasting is excluded because we are part of the people of God through faith. It is God's grace that grafted you in, that made you a member of God's kingdom. Not you, he's saying. There is, there is no place here for spiritual pride. In fact, pride was one of the very things that caused Israel to be rejected. We are the children of Abraham, remember they said to Jesus. We've never been enslaved to anyone. We have Abraham as our father. The Mishnah says all Israel have a portion in the world to come. See, that's spiritual pride. And we should not, must not have that, must not share in that. He says, do not become proud, but fear. Why? Well, because God is sovereign and God is just. And just as the Jews foolishly but falsely appealed to some eternal claim on God's grace because of something that was out of their control, who they were, who their ancestors were, they were not spared from being cast off. Paul says, neither will he spare you. The Gentile grafted in branches are in no more of a secure situation if they reject the Lord than the Jews were. Just as the Jews could not rely on their Jewishness, neither can us Gentiles rely on our Gentileness to make us a part of that tree. It is a faith tree. It is a grace tree. And that's how we become a part of it, by grace through faith. And then an, an encouragement here in verse 22. He says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. What's he saying there? He's warning the Gentiles. He's warning us. And encouraging us to note both the kindness and the severity of God as he has grafted in Gentiles and broken off unbelieving natural branches. He says, let us, as those wild branches grafted in as members of God's people, let us be sure that we continue to abide in that vine. Think of John 15. Let us not be proud and look down, even today, look down on the Jews of today. It's easy for us today to look at Israel and see you know, on the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament a people who have been given great blessings and yet have thrown them all away while chasing other gods and other pursuits. And though we do not believe, we have to be careful here, we do not believe that Israel has a redemptive part to play in the future of the world, as we'll see, the Bible does teach that they are a part of the future purpose of God. 
And we must avoid any temptation to look askance at the Jews, to look down on them. And I'm not talking about just general anti-Semitism, which is also unacceptable, but with, to look at them with any sort of spiritual pride on our part. Our part, Because Paul says the Jews in general, many of them were broken off. Do you think that therefore God cannot break off the Gentiles? Yes, he can. So there's no reason to be proud. And so that's the exhortation to us. Because we have been grafted in, let us be humble. Let us be thankful. And finally, in verses 23 and 24, Paul ends on a note on the feasibility of Israel's restoration. Returning here to the topic with which he began, Paul holds out this this glorious opportunity for the Jewish people, especially to Israel as a nation in general, which we know he refers specifically to those branches that have been broken off, you know, the, the ones who are still on the tree as of now, they don't have to be restored because they're already part of the tree. So he's obviously talking about those that have been broken off. He says in verse 23, and even they, speaking of those that have been broken off, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. Now, this seems perhaps a contrary to nature happening that that broken off branches can be restored. But Paul assures us, assures his, his Jewish readers, assures himself as someone who is greatly desirous of the salvation of his people that God has the power to graft them in again. That the fact that they've been broken off does not mean that God cannot bring them back. even the grafting in of what was broken off, even the removal of the hardening that we have seen since the days of Christ and even before, as we saw this morning. And Paul explains that this this makes sense with an argument, this time from the greater to the lesser. It's in verse 24. He says, For if, if you were cut off, from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. Stop there. So he's picturing going out to a wild olive tree and getting some branches from there and bringing them into this nice uh, pruned and cultivated, uh, domesticated olive tree, if you will, and putting them on there, grafting them in. He says if, if that is true, if that can be done, Paul says, how much more can God take those who were natural branches, the ones that came off of this tree that he had broken off because of their unbelief? How much more could God take those branches and put them back on the tree? And the implication is that God will do this. And this all of this explanation here is leading up to the, the climax of these three chapters, chapters 9 and 10 and 11, to the climax of these three chapters and to some of the most debated words in the New Testament. And we'll look at them next week. But this morning, let us remember 
Let us go away from this, seeing and remembering how God has worked through redemptive history with the the gospel coming to the Jews, them rejecting it, the gospel going to the Gentiles, them receiving it, them making Israel jealous, and with the, the, the knowledge that in the end God will use that jealousy to remove the hardening that has been laying upon Israel. That though Israel is not part of God's redemptive purpose as, as other um, theologies would teach, that there is still a place for God to be dealing with his people. And according to this passage, he will do it. And we'll look at it more next week. Let us not be proud toward, um, toward the Jews. Let us not be spiritual snobs knowing that we're on this tree by God's grace. Let us magnify that grace and magnify the God who has by grace put us there. And to that we say, amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, we, we pray that you would help us to, to understand these things. We pray, Father, that uh, you would help us to rejoice in the knowledge that we have been grafted in to the one uh, tree, the tree whose true root is Christ and from whom we receive all of our spiritual nourishment. Lord, we pray that you would bless us as we go from this place. Help us, Lord, to rejoice, to pray, Father, even for the Jews, for Israel of this world, that they may be brought back to God through Jesus Christ, that they may see the truth of the gospel, that they may hear and believe the gospel of Christ, that they may embrace Christ as their Messiah, as the one true Son of God, and that through that, Lord, that you might bring many um, to you. And we pray these things in the name of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.